The scripture reading will come from Mark chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 14 to 20. And then we'll be jumping to Ephesians chapter 4 and reading verses 11 through 16. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little, little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father of Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We'll now turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and read verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it's, it builds itself up in love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Good morning, church. And every time my brother Paul Choi comes and speaks, I'm so proud. You know, I've known him since he was like seventh grade, such a rascal back then, but he's grown so much. So praise God. Uh, it's good to see all of you. I was told that we have a sister who's visiting us for the first time. Her name is Hannah. I didn't get to meet her yet, but Hannah, if you're, are you sitting somewhere over there? Okay, there. She's right over there. Uh, let's give her a warm welcome. All right. You guys awake? And 9 o'clock service, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe it's the weather. It's kind of a low-energy service earlier. Um, go Chiefs? Oh. Go, go Eagles? <laughs> All right. Uh, today we're continuing our series and you know, covering our vision, mission, core values, and today we're going to be looking at our fourth core value. First one was Christ-centered, second one was confessional, third one was kingdom first, and today is disciple-making. And if you, if you missed any of these, I recommend you just go online and, and uh, listen to them separately, okay? And uh, as, we, as we ask ourselves, you know, what does it look like for us to be a disciple-making church? Um, my hope is that you know, through this message, God will, first of all, give you a genuine desire to become a disciple of Christ, right? Essentially a follower of Christ, uh, since following Christ should be understood to be this, this great blessing, privilege, and honor. I hope you truly feel that way. And secondly, I, uh, for those of you who already count yourself to be a 
uh, genuine disciple of Christ, my hope is that you would want to become a disciple maker yourselves, <clears throat> or at least to play an active role somehow in, in the allowing our church to become better at being a disciple-making church. Uh, and that's important for us because we believe that that is really at the very core of God's heart for his church. And I, I hope that you'll be convinced of that at the end of this message. Okay, I've chosen to break down the message in three parts uh, just for the sake of clarity. And also, since you're meeting now with your CGs, it's always easier to kind of have an outline you can follow. Number one, uh, the call of discipleship. Number two, the cost of discipleship. And number three, the commitment of discipleship, okay? So it's pretty easy to remember. The call, the cost, and the commitment. So first, the call of discipleship. <clears throat> now, when you read the Gospels, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, each writer includes a story of how Jesus formed his first disciples. And he essentially you know, called them. He called them to follow him. Uh, he commanded them, actually. He commands them to follow him. Now, unfortunately, in our day, the term followers uh, has a very different meaning. So I need to just take a brief moment to clarify what followers mean, okay? There's this funny meme that's out there. Uh, it, it's pretty funny, in my opinion. I'm not sure if, what you think of it, but there, it's Jesus. He's, he's sitting on a bench trying to persuade this young man who's probably like, a, I don't know, Gen Y or something, Gen Z perhaps, and he's, he's, he's saying like, no, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally want you to follow me, right? Uh, that's not funny? I thought it was pretty <laughs> you know, Essentially, disciples are followers, right? Not in the sense of, how we follow someone on social media, but in the sense of submitting ourselves to uh, a person's authority or opening ourselves up to being shaped by that person's instruction. Right? In that sense, we're called to follow Jesus. And discipleship is not meant to be an easy thing because, honestly, no one likes to be placed under someone's authority. Uh, and look at what Mark what our, what our passage in Mark says today. It says, I want you to first notice how Jesus' call to follow him includes this brief job description. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Okay, now this means essentially that the disciple of Christ is called to be a disciple maker whether you like it or not. Again, because... You know, we're, we're called to submit under Jesus' authority, and he's telling us, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. And so the, the first disciples had to leave their simple, insulated fisherman lifestyle and culture and become these rather outspoken evangelists and missionaries and teachers in order to reach people from outside their little bubble, and that was going to be greatly uncomfortable for them, and it's true for us as well. It should be, you know, make ourselves uncomfortable as well. Uh, you know, the, there's this famous Great Commission passage found in Matthew 28. All of you should know this, right? It says, go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Okay, it opens up with, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Right? When you hear that phrase, how many imperatives do you hear? In English, you hear two imperatives, right? Go and make disciples, right? But you know, if you examine the Greek, and this is important because you know, it, it kind of uh, helps us set our priorities straight, right? Because in Greek, there's only one imperative. Which one do you think it is? Do you think it's go, or do you think it's make disciples? Okay. In Greek, there's only one imperative, and it's make disciples, right? Uh, the words go and baptize and teach, they're all in the form of the participle, right? In other words, they're meant to uh, serve the main imperative. And so a more literal translation would read something like this. As you're being called to go, make disciples. Right? That is the main imperative there. Make disciples. And you do so by baptizing them. And you make disciples by teaching them everything I taught you. That, that's the more literal translation. But even, even though I, I frame it that way, I think it's still very difficult to be uh, called to live as a follower of Christ, especially for someone like me, right, who naturally prefers to be left alone. Right? I, don't, I don't want to naturally become like a, a, a disciple maker. That's really uncomfortable for me. Like if I was born, honestly, in a different time and culture, I may have ended up becoming a monk, no joke. I mean, that's how much I don't mind spending time alone. But the, the calling that I have received to be a disciple of Christ, it just simply does not allow me to be alone because it requires me to go where people are. Like if I'm to be a, a disciple maker, I, I need to go, right? I, I need to, you know, be in the work of baptizing and teaching others to some degree, right? And so this requires me to become something that I normally would not become, left to myself. I need to pray, therefore, for boldness and courage and patience as I interact with all sorts of people. And I need to be willing to die to my personal preferences in order to live in obedience to God I hope you feel the same way. To be a disciple means that my natural disposition, it does need to change to a certain degree. Right? My fundamental posture has to change from being inwardly focused to becoming somewhat of an outward-facing person. Right? And so that's the call. It's not easy. But the call is meant to challenge you and change you and shape the way you view all of life and your relationships and it's going to make you also into a more prayerful person because you know that you can't do it by yourself. You need God's help. Secondly, the cost. In verse 18, it says, they left their nets. Okay, They left their nets. What could that mean? They left their nets means that they gave up their livelihood. Right? I mean, think about it. It's the only thing they knew how to do well, fish. 
And this must have been very difficult for them, right? They had to leave their life. It was a huge risk for them to do this. They left their nets. Now, this doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, that quitting your jobs is a prerequisite to following Jesus, right? I don't think we should at all interpret this passage in that way. However, I would argue that it does mean that we're to follow Jesus even if it may cost our jobs and our livelihood. That much I will say with confidence. Many Christians, as you know, they have sacrificed a more comfortable and better life in order to follow Christ. I'm not just talking about pastors and missionaries. I'm also talking about regular Christians who have decided to leave their jobs after realizing that it would be impossible for them to keep their jobs while maintaining their personal integrity as Christ followers. And I have no doubt that we'll be seeing more cases like that as our culture becomes even more hostile toward the Christian faith. And I sincerely hope that all of us would be willing and able to make such sacrifices as well so that your faith, my faith, would not be compromised in the process. I said this to you before, but if our denomination ever compromised its core beliefs and it made a a wrong turn, I would be one of the first ones to say, I can no longer be part of this denomination, and I would call the church to depart from the PCA if that were to ever ever happen, you know, God forbid. But, you know, uh, I mean, that... that it, it takes such sacrifices to remain faithful to the Lord in our day, in our world, right? regardless of what time we're living in. Uh, to follow Christ means that we need to be willing to go wherever God takes us, even if it means experiencing some personal loss in this life. Why? Because you know, we're to leave our nets and follow him. It also says in verse 20 that they left their father Zebedee. They left their father Zebedee. And uh, I want us to also think about this verse in Luke chapter 14 uh, as we consider our passage today. Luke chapter 14, verse 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, strong words there, and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, okay? And before you worry too much, I want to make it clear that this is an example of Jesus using the literary tool of hyperbole, okay? And we know this is hyperbole because Jesus obviously, he obviously knows about the fifth commandment, right? Thou, thou shalt honor your father and mother. I mean, he wrote the commandments, so he, he knows it very well. And uh, he, he knows that we're called to honor. I mean, he desires that we honor and respect our parents. And so this is hyperbole, right? Hatred here could simply be understood to be loving less, right? And so in comparison to your love for Jesus, right, you should love your own father and mother less You should love your wife, children, brothers and sister less. All of your other relationships in life are subordinate to your relationship with Christ. 
And honestly, if, if you live with those kinds of priorities, what will your life look like? I mean, if you always choose Jesus, right, if there's some kind of conflict between you know, your allegiance to your, your family versus Jesus, if there's ever a conflict and you always choose Jesus, what would that look like in the eyes of others? It would look like as if you actually hated your family members, right? If you're always choosing Jesus. And that's the point of the teaching, right? So keep, keep that in balance. He's not saying literally hate your, your family, okay? Uh, he wants us to honor our parents and take care of our families. But you must love Jesus more, far more than anything else in this life. And so this is another great cost of discipleship, is it not? Because it's, un, un, it's, it's uncommon for people to value their family, um, or sorry, it's rather, it's not uncommon, I should say, for people to value their family over everything else in this life. That's why it's so hard for those, especially born into Muslim homes, because for them, right, to be a disciple who follows Jesus literally does mean that they have to abandon their family ties. And oftentimes it's not their choice. They will be cut off. And that's a cost that not many are willing to pay. I mean, you know, uh, some of us may, may be willing to, like, lose a few friends, but to go so far as to lose our own family, right, most people will choose to say, no, thank you. I cannot go that far. But let's pause for a moment here to consider, okay, really what is at stake, you know? Because it's true that the cost of discipleship with Jesus is great. But I want you to consider the cost of non-discipleship, right? because that is even greater. The cost of not becoming a disciple of Christ, right? That cost, I'm arguing this morning, I hope it is clear to you, that, is, that, that, that cost is greater than following Jesus. Uh, and I, I got that language from John Bloom, who uh, I think still writes for Desiring God, he put it, who put it this way, that Jesus tells us to count the cost of discipleship, but if we count the cost primarily in terms of what we will lose on earth, we're focusing on the wrong cost. Jesus wants us to count the cost of non-discipleship. Right? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. Isn't that a greater cost? To lose your soul? So yes, if you become a disciple of Christ, you will lose friends. You will be hated by some. You may even face physical harm like many Christians in some parts of the world today. But see, it's God's guaranteed promise to us that we will gain so much more, if not in this life, in the life to come. Remember that. It's not just about this life. Matthew 19, 29 puts it this way. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. See, it's not just that if you lose a friend or a family member in this life that God's going to just like, you know, replace you with one more family member, right, or friend, right? No, it says God's going to fill that void with a hundredfold, right? You will gain many more 
brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in Christ because God's household is that immense, is that rich, it is that fulfilling. And so Jesus is worth it. Brothers and sisters, be reminded this morning that Jesus is worth it. And this world is not all there is. And this world ultimately never satisfies. Be reminded this morning that nothing in this world can satisfy our deepest longing but God. As, as one preacher put it, every well will run dry except for the water of God. And every bread will grow moldy except for the bread of God. Only God can satisfy. Amen? So yes, the cost of discipleship is great, but the cost of non-discipleship is even greater. And that's why we should look at the call of discipleship, right, to follow Christ as a great blessing and as an expression of God's grace upon our lives, right? Thanks be to God that he's called us to be his disciples. I hope you're still not trying to run away from that call, you know? Count the true cost. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we have been made a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, we were like orphans being kicked around, abandoned. Is that what you want to be still? Is that what you want to, is that the life you want for the rest of eternity? Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people, right? Why? Because he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. How is that possible? Well, God calls us to be his disciples. Right? That's where it begins. And so as you consider the cost of discipleship, understand that the cost of non-discipleship is much greater. And I want you to reaffirm the fact that this call to follow Jesus is such a great blessing, honor, and privilege. Thirdly, the commitment, the commitment. And I have just two things I wanted to share here. I, I initially had three, but uh, I'm just edited out, okay? Just to keep, kind of keep the message tighter. And th th these uh, reflections are based on Ephesians 4. Uh, so first is this. Uh, what is the first commitment? Right. The disciple of Christ, the disciple of Christ is committed to the work of ministry. Okay? Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And so when I'm reading this list, when I, when I hear shepherds and teachers, I'm thinking, okay, that's me. Right? That's, that's me. That's our pastoral staff. And he gave the church these people to do what? It says to equip the saints. And so when I hear the saints, at least in this context, I'm thinking about you guys. Right? You are the saints mentioned here. And so he gave people like me, people like Pastor Jacob, Pastor Andrew, Pastor Hugh, Pastor David, Pastor Sheung. I'm not missing anybody. 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, right? And so your commitment as the saints should be for the work of ministry. So who's expected to, to, to do equipping? Okay. People like me. And I'm not saying that that's not work of ministry, but, you know, to kind of use these categories in this context, I'm called to do the equipping, okay? You are called to do the work of ministry primarily. Now, to illustrate this point a little further, I, I wanted to mention two shows that I watched growing up as a young kid. Um, the first show was a TV show that uh, probably only uh, Joel knows here because uh, he's my generation. But we'll see, we'll see. Uh, it ran from the late 70s to the late 80s, and it was called The Love Boat. Right? You guys see any reruns of that? The Love Boat. I looked at the lyrics. Soon we'll be making another run. That's how it opened up, okay? The Love Boat. Check this out. Promise is something for everyone. Uh, and, you know, for those of you who don't know what this is, it's, it's not what you're thinking. It's not some scandalous show, okay? It was actually a pretty family-friendly, feel-good comedy show. And so our family would gather around on Saturday nights and watch these passengers uh, with relationship problems, usually, hop on board the love boat and see their problems magically disappear within the span of 50 minutes. Right? <laughs> that was uh, the plot of the show. It was fun. You know, we kind of laugh and just kind of a good way to wind down after, you know, a day. But I want to make it clear to all of you that we are not, as a church, trying to be like the love boat, right? Not because we don't want to help solve your relationship problems, but because the love boat was this massive cruise ship that existed to basically pamper its passengers and to meet all of their felt needs. That's what, that's what its purpose was, right? I mean, that's what cruise ships are meant for. They have everything you'd want and much more, from all-you-can-eat buffets to open bars to spa treatment to convenient childcare, and, you know, you're just meant to relax and just kind of, I don't know, just be selfish all day, right? <laughs> that's what the purpose of a cruise ship is. But... There was another show that came out in 1986, so I was 14 at the time, and it was a movie titled Top Gun, featuring the young and handsome Tom Cruise, right? He's no longer young nor handsome, although some of you may disagree. Uh, and in the opening scene of the movie, you were introduced to the USS Enterprise, which was this massive aircraft carrier. Now, an aircraft carrier was not a place you would go to relax and lounge, but it was a place where these powerful fighter jets like the F-14s or the F-18s, if you watch the second installment of Top Gun, right, you're familiar with the F-18s more, right? But these, these Top Gun pilots would fly out in their jets to engage the enemy, and they would return to the USS Enterprise. Why? Not to get pampered, but to get equipped with a new plan, perhaps, or to get their F-14s refueled or repaired so that they could be sent out again and engage the enemy. Right? They, they were sent out to go into battle. Right? That was their mission and purpose. That's a very different picture, isn't it? But the sad reality is that many people view the church less like the USS Enterprise and more like the love boat. That's a problem. 
right? Instead of viewing the church as an aircraft carrier that equips you and refuels you and repairs you so that you can be sent out into the world again to battle against the enemy, people want the church to have all of the amenities that will make their experience enjoyable and comfortable, a place that they can come to feel good about themselves, a place where they can be served rather than to serve. You see the difference, the contrast? So, brothers, sisters, if I ever start talking and acting like a captain running the love boat, please do something about it. Stop me. Slap me or something, right? Because I'm supposed to be running our ministry more like it's the USS Enterprise. You guys look stressed. You guys okay? We're going to be okay, guys, all right? <laughs> Again, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right? That paradigm's got to be part of what we do here. So let's be a church that equips its members to do the work of ministry rather than a church that pampers and entertains its members and treat its members like spiritual consumers all day, every day. Amen? Oh, much better than 9 o'clock. Thank you. Uh, secondly and lastly, the disciple of Christ is committed to spiritual growth, right? To active spiritual growth. And I, I'm just going to read more of uh, what I, from the passage in Ephesians 4. So after it says, to equip the saints of, uh, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. It's all, it's all language of spiritual maturity, okay, spiritual growth. It says, 14, uh, Joel prayed this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Well, so what does this require? It requires spiritual training and growth, right? And I hope, brothers and sisters, that you are fully committed to growing in your faith so that you can actually do the work of ministry as God enables you to do so. I thought this uh, example would be helpful. I, th I mean, think about just what it takes for us to train ourselves physically. I know that many of you are really into physical training, right? not just this year, but you've been doing this for quite some time. Even today, I, I talked to some brothers who were like practicing for a marathon. I was like, wow, you ran 10 miles the other day? Right? And they're walking around like this. You know, like tight hammies, right? I, I get tight hammies just after picking up some laundry. Right? These guys are like <laughs> at another level. <laughs> but, you know, uh, no joke. I, I was talking to a brother who was part of our church for quite a while, and then he left somewhere, and he came back uh, not too long ago. And, like, one of his first observations is basically, wow, why, why are Cornerstone guys who, like, he, he, he literally did, he did this. He said, like, why, why are cornerstone guys like, like, all like this now, right? Like, everyone's so buff. And I was like, yeah, it's partly because during COVID, some, of, some guys, they built their own gyms, and, and a lot of guys get together now to work out, and so they got like this over time, right? But you guys know, for, for anyone to become like this, uh, it takes intentionality. Right? It takes some kind of, like, systematic program, like you have to have a plan, like on day, you know, 
maybe Monday, you hit the legs to Monday, maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you, that, those are leg days, right? Like three times a week, leg days. And then the other days are like other, other parts, arms and back perhaps, right? You, you want to be balanced in your approach. Uh, if you're like me, you know, uh, my mistake when I was starting out working, I, I had no idea that squats and deadlifts were, like, essential for working out. All I did was, like, chest because I wanted to be, like, <laughs> I was all, all I was doing was chest. So I, after a while, I was, like, top-heavy. I kind of looked, like, why, why can't I touch my elbows, you know? It's like I, I look very awkward, imbalanced. I had a huge chest, but everything else was, like, kind of small. It didn't look good at all, and I... I I would you know, kind of walk around awkwardly. Right? You don't want that. Right? You want to be more intentional with your training. Right? And the reason why I share that is because it's not any different when it comes to your spiritual training. Right? Why would you think it's different with your spiritual training? Right? If you only work your mind by listening to smart people talk all the time and reading like heady material, like, about, like most what seminarians do, <laughs> Yeah, you will grow in some way, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be reading, like that's sort of that season of life, that they should be taking a lot of heady stuff, but if that's all you're doing every day, every week, then yeah, you will grow in some way, but you'll start looking like this very awkward spiritual Charlie Brown and get all big-headed and pompous and arrogant. Really, that's what happens. That's why a lot of seminarians, after like three or four years of that, they do become a, you know, pretty cocky and annoying. And so what happens, was, what happens usually is they, after seminary, they, they enter into ministry, and ministry humbles them. And they realize, okay, maybe I need to be, you know, be more balanced, right? Maybe I should pray more, actually. Right? Maybe I should really uh, read the Bible more devotionally, right? Those, those thoughts kick in at some point. But on the other hand, if you never challenge your mind to think deeply about the Bible and how it should be applied to your life, you will be deficient in some key areas that should really matter to you, okay? So balance is important. Right? You don't just wanna work on the chest, right? You, you wanna work on the legs too. Same thing, spiritually, you, you don't wanna just, you know, like feed your mind with like all this heady stuff, right? You wanna practice some devotional time. You wanna learn how to pray, okay? You, you wanna learn how to, you know, uh, counsel people in a very edifying way, right? And not just like speak your mind and and, you know, beat them on top of the head with the, the truth you know, right? You become this very unpleasant character. And so you have to be intentional about your spiritual training as well if you want to grow and not be stunted in your spiritual growth. Now, so with that in mind, <clears throat> I wanted to introduce to you a new initiative that your pastors have agreed to begin sometime in March, okay? Because we have known... Uh, for quite some time now, and, uh, you know, largely it's sort of, I guess I, I take the most responsibility, okay, the, the, buck, the buck stops with me, uh, but we have known for quite some time now that there has been a deficiency in our spiritual workout regimen as a church, okay? So, like, you know, we, our emphasis has been, for the most part, worship, this Sunday worship time, as well as, you know, our preaching ministry has been rather strong. It's encouraging to see our pastoral interns even become like these very able preachers. It's great, you know. But honestly, over the years, we've sort of sprinkled in teaching ministry. You know, we've met on Saturday mornings at times. We've done some weekday Bible studies at times. We use our summer months to 
to kind of invest more in that sort of Bible study material. But on all other seasons of the year, it's sort of like sparse. It's really hard to, uh, to be in a Bible study. You know, we have CGs, but they're different, right? They're not Bible studies, right? There's a lack of teaching ministry that goes on in Cornerstone. I admit, I admit that, okay? That's one of, I would say, our weaknesses. And so to help remedy that, we are going to begin holding adult Sunday school classes, right? probably for the first time ever in our history. You don't look too excited. Right? <laughs> uh, we, we were discussing this idea in our staff meeting a few weeks ago, and uh, some of our pastors, like myself, were a bit hesitant. But uh, the most excited one was, guess who? Right. It was Pastor Hehu, right? Pastor Hehu, our pastoral intern, right? Uh, the most excited one. He was, I, when, I, when I think about teaching, like the one who's excited about teaching, I usually think of Pastor Jacob. But Pastor Hehu was uh, another level of excitement, right? <laughs> Pastor Jacob was excited too, but Pastor Hehu was even more excited. And so <clears throat> I, I, I was I decided to play devil's advocate, and I, I asked this very difficult question in our staff meeting. I said, he who, why should our people listen to any of us? And I, I may have, I don't remember to be honest. Uh, I may have said, why should our people listen to, to you? But uh, <laughs> let, me, let me soften it. Let me soften it for the uh, recording sake, okay? Uh, <laughs> Why should our people listen to any of us when they could just watch someone more gifted and more experienced on YouTube and learn from them, right? Again, playing devil's advocate, okay? I, I, and you should really think about how you would answer that question in a godly and biblical way, too, in our social media age, it's really not an easy question to answer, is it? I recognize that. You see, but your, your answer should not be, that's right. <laughs> I don't need anyone to teach me at the church anymore since I can just watch YouTube all day. I mean, there's so many great resources out there. Right? I mean, there's even dead people preaching still, like Billy Graham. I can just learn from, learn from Billy Graham all day, every day. And now that there's ChatGPT... I don't even need a real person to teach me. I can just ask the AI. If you don't know what that is, it's the next big thing, okay? So, um, so you shouldn't be answering that way. Here's how I would answer that question, okay? Knowing that there are so many awesome resources that are accessible, very easily accessible to any of us. Right? And I, even I, I'm not discouraging you from listening to others on YouTube. I, I do it too. I benefit from that teaching too. But see, we're a church. We're a, a church, a covenanted community, a covenantal community that's meant to be committed to one another, right? The pastor, in our case, the pastors are called to shepherd you as their flock, right? We're supposed to care for our sheep. And you as the sheep... <clears throat> You are not to be, uh, you know, committed to isolate yourselves, 
Uh, just as we're not to be selfish and just kind of look out for ourselves as pastors, you are also not to do that, right? You are to be committed uh, and to, to practice some responsibility. And your responsibility is not only to listen to your pastors, right, as long as they're not, they're not teaching heresy, but you're also to help us. And let me be honest here. You're, you're supposed to help us be better equipped to teach, right, and to, to help us develop and cultivate our own pastoral gifts in the long run. Uh, what would happen, do you think, if we invited the whole church to be taught by our pastors, your pastors, right, and only a small percentage showed up and showed any interest? How do you think that would affect us? How do you think that would affect me? Right? Well, I, I will tell you how it affected me in the past, right? I was a young, young pastor, you know, kind of not as skilled in my teaching, and I would try to do Bible studies, or I would try to offer some teaching seminars, and in my mind, like, you know, there wasn't as much response, and so it discouraged me, and so I'm thinking to myself, I'm always second-guessing myself, should I do this, should I do that, you know, maybe, if, maybe they, don't, they don't like it, maybe they don't think it's worth it, and, and, you know, eventually it becomes less and less of that, okay? And so in the long run, I never really get to develop and cultivate these pastoral gifts. It's not good for me. It's not good for you, okay? It's not good for anyone. It's not good for the church, right? That's part of your responsibility, right? That's part of how you can care for your pastor in some way, right? So we care for you by, by committing ourselves to preaching and teaching God's word faithfully, right? And part of your responsibility toward us is to, to listen. And look, look what uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. I know this is, this is hard language to swallow in, in our day where there's a lot of spiritual abuse, okay? I'm not, I'm not discounting the fact that spiritual abuse by pastors do happen, but see, you are not to negate these passages. It's, it's still part of God's word that you have to apply in some way, right? And, you know, we, we vow not to be spiritually abusive, but see, you're, you're to still vow to obey your leaders and submit to your leaders it says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, right? We are directly responsible for you, right? God holds us accountable directly, right? Not, not, not the dead guy on YouTube, right? He, he knows nothing about you. He's not directly responsible for any of you. Well, we are. And so it says, let them do this with joy, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, you see. Right? Not be good for me, not be, not be good for you. Right? If, if you see me constantly groaning, <laughs> moaning, uh, ministry, uh, my people, they, just, they hate me. <laughs> you know, they don't like my teaching, you know. Um, you don't want that, right? It sucks the joy out of ministry. Right? Uh, so... To use a saying from another Tom Cruise movie, help me help you, okay? Help me help you. Help us help you, okay? I got a chuckle out of my wife's eye. I feel good, right? Help us help you, right? So in, instead of, if you didn't see the movie, right, basically, instead of being this selfish, diva-like character played by Cuba Gooding Jr., in Jerry Maguire, who only sought to look after himself without wanting to be a team player, who was basically unteachable, uncoachable, okay? Don't be that person. Rather, help me 
called you, right? And you do so by receiving your pastor's teaching and helping your pastors grow in their teaching gifts. And as we grow as pastors, it'll benefit everyone in the church. I guarantee it, okay? So our first day, uh, our first class, rather, will be held on March 12th, it looks like. I still need to do a, get a final confirmation of this, um, but it looks like it will be March 12th, Sunday afternoon, likely 1.15 for this first class. We'll have lunch provided, right, to attract you, to come, to entice you, incentivize. <laughs> uh, and we managed to establish a partnership with RTS, uh, the local seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary that many of our staff members attend still. And you may or may not be happy to hear this, but uh, Dr. Thomas Keene from RTS, one of he who's favorite professors, by the way, okay, um, I don't know anything about him, but Dr. Thomas Keene has agreed to come and kickstart this sort of pilot class that we're doing, okay? So he's just going to be here for one Sunday. The other Sundays following, for like six to eight weeks probably, will be led by uh, one of us, okay? It's not going to be me, okay? Uh, I'm just kind of, yeah, I, I'm going to defer this to one of our, probably Pastor Jacob, okay? Pastor Hugh may teach later on this year, okay? But uh, likely it'll be Pastor Jacob, I'm thinking, okay? And so, um, and for the first class on March 12th, we will do our best to provide childcare. Uh, but for the classes following after that, it'll be difficult to do that each week. So we'll consider offering a live stream option and providing a recording afterwards. But it'd still it'd be best if you're, if you're able to, to attend in person and support or the teaching ministry, support the teaching ministry of the church, okay? So that's the plan right now. Um, so let me say it one more time. One last time before I close the message. Help me help you, okay? Let's pray. Dear Father, because of your love for us, you have called us to be your disciples and to follow you, even through the darkest valleys of life and even at the risk of losing our earthly comforts. We confess that this life of discipleship is sometimes quite painful. So we ask, Lord, that you would show us your glory. For if we see your glory, we will know that you are a God who is worthy of our lives and that a life of suffering and death is not a life to be shunned, but a life to count as a privilege. So as your disciples, Lord, we ask that you would equip us, God, to live a life worthy of the gospel and to be fishers of men, faithfully and boldly testifying of your truth, rather than living in secrecy and fear. And all this for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand together and give praise to God.